was blind part two. This is the second message of John chapter nine that we began last week. And as I said, we're back in chapter nine of John's gospel this morning on the heels of what is the sixth of seven miracles in the gospel of John. In this case, Jesus has healed a man who was born blind. That you already know for those who may have been out last week. That's where we are. Now we're going through the next section of this event. We saw how after the healing, the neighbors, as they are called, and others who knew the man who was born blind began to question the validity of the man's healing. And eventually the Pharisees become involved. As you know, the Pharisees were a very strict sect within Judaism. They loved Moses and they loved his law, but they weren't much about the spirit of the law. They ask him, they ask his parents, and here we are at our first point this morning, this continuation of the conflict. This begins in verse 24 and goes through verse 34. We're going to call our first point the conflict. Now, it begins like this in verse 24, if you look at it with your eyes. So for the second time, what is it? The second time... They called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God because we know that this man, that is Jesus, is a sinner. Now, what I want you to put your focus on, no pun intended, what I want you to look at with your eyes is this phrase, So for the second time. Okay? So for the second time. The second time isn't just telling us that it's the second consecutive request. It's also telling us that they didn't get the answer they wanted the first time. One author writes, quote, The Jews press the healed man, and he withstands them with some vigor. They take their stand on their preconceived ideas. He, on the simple facts of what he knows... What a great quote that reminds us that there's a lot of things happening here, but the basic issue in regards to this young man is the testimony he refuses to let go of. Well, they come for, what is it? A second time. A second time. Write this down. When you put boundaries up, when you start to draw lines in the sand... When you start to articulate your convictions, there will always be people who test those boundaries, who test those lines, who test those convictions. I'm going to put it simple like this. Whenever you construct a boundary, that boundary will be tested. I'm going to say that again. Whenever you construct a boundary, that boundary will be tested. And so it is in this case. And if the result isn't what is desired by those who are testing it, then they'll test it again. And they'll test it again. And guess what? They'll test it again until you take down the boundary that you constructed or they get the hint. Your boundary is more important than anything else. If you've never felt or sensed this feeling in your relationships, in your interactions with people, in your decision-making processes, then I'm going to say this, it's probably because you don't have any boundaries. If you've never been able to articulate this word to someone, no. It's probably because you don't have any boundaries. 
If you've never told anybody, don't talk to me that way, it's probably because you don't have any boundaries. If you haven't ever told anybody who's around you talking in a way that you wouldn't approve of or, or making jokes of somebody that's close to you and shaming them or embarrassing them and you didn't speak up for them, it's because you don't have any boundaries. You get the drift? But when you say, hey, that's enough of that, here's my line, they're going to come up to you and they're going to go, let me see how serious you are about this fence you just put up. I'm going to test you again. That's why they come and they go, we came a second time because they tested them the first time. They say, hey, listen, all I know is that I was blind and I can see. So they say, well, we're going to test you again and see how serious you are about this. Whenever you construct a boundary, people are going to test it. And I want you to write this down too. The only people who have problems with people who have boundaries are people who don't. The only people who have a problem with people who have boundaries are people who don't. In this case, the man isn't budging. He's got a testimony. He's holding on to the fact that he was blind, and now he can what? Now he can see. Look again, if you would, at verse 24. It says, so for the second time they came to the man who had been born blind, and, and they said to him, they're telling him what to do. Now give glory to God. We know that this man was a sinner. They're, they don't have the gall. They most certainly don't have the evidence to say in what way he's a sinner. They're just using a general reference. Uh, Jesus is a sinner. Verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already. Which, you know, we go back through the story. He made the money, put it on his eyes. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. I've already told you the story. I couldn't see. Now I can see. Do you want to be his disciples too? Verse 25. They reviled him. They insulted him, saying, you're his disciple. We're the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the conversation continues with might I say, a respectful rebuttal from this young man. If there's one thing that a person without boundaries really can't stand, it's a person with boundaries. Let me say that again. If there's one thing a person without boundaries really can't stand, the kind of person they really resent is a person with boundaries. You know, young ladies, when you tell the, the boy who's coming on too strong, I have boundaries, they really resent that. But your heavenly father doesn't. At the end of verse 21, I want you to see the words. At the end of verse 21, how he now sees, we do not know, his parents say, the first time they were asked. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. And this is what I want you guys to look at for a second. Ask him. He's of age. With a threat of excommunication from the synagogue, and since they were presumably not there when this miraculous event happened and took place, when they're asked about the miracle, they simply bow out and they say of their son, ask him, he's of age. And this is important, I want you to get this. Listen, there comes a time when we need to testify of our own miracles. 
There comes a time when we need to testify of our own stories, our own conversion to Christ. And there comes a time when our stories only mean something coming from us. And not from our parents, not from our guardians, not from our teachers. Say amen if you're listening. We need to come of age. We need to come of age. Now, presumably, this kid was maybe, say, 14, 15. You know, the, the bar mitzvah has happened. He's of age. In their culture, he's considered a young man. But I, I don't want to focus on if you're 15, you should be able to stand in front of a sort of legal gathering and have a debate. That's not what I want to focus on. What I want to focus on is this. How long have you been a Christian, and how long are, are you relying on what other people say about you in Christ? You need to come of age. We all need to come of age. We can't be babes in Christ forever. It's only cute when they're little. As people grow year after year, if they're still chubby and fat and sucking milk, it's not attractive anymore. You got to start taking protein and walking the walk and talking the talk. Living the life that Christ called you to live. Not leaning on somebody because you don't have boundaries who you've asked to live for you. See, many of you, if it were not for that, whoever it is, would not be here today. And we praise God for that. We praise God for the support that God has given us, but we also, at the same time, need to realize that God gives us that support to give us the wherewithal we need to come of age, not to be lazy. I want you to note something. We all need to come of age. What does it mean? To come of age means that we need to speak of our own faith, not the faith of our parents, not the faith of our grandparents. To come of age means that we need to take responsibility for our own decisions. To come of age means that we testify of our own convictions sometimes we don't testify convictions because we haven't had any I don't have any convictions I, I wouldn't know how to testify of a conviction if you taught me because I don't have any of which to testify that goes with boundaries by the way this is what it means to come of age and that he does the debate ensues in verse 28 and also we see they, they say well you're his disciple we're the disciples of Moses, but Jesus already addressed this idea in John chapter 5. You see, Moses writes of Jesus. The Old Testament isn't fulfilled without the new. And the new doesn't make sense without the old. The Old Testament and the New Testament have to be considered together in order to be understood properly. Moses is important, amen? I mean, Moses is important. Moses. In fact, Clayton texted me yesterday. And he said, why, why do you think that there was, why do you think the leaders were set up before Moses was gone? And I said, I think the leaders were set up before Moses was gone so that the leadership was already established when he died. Could you imagine the fight that would have taken place? I'm the one that should take the place of Moses. I'm the one that should take the place of Moses. Why isn't our tribe the one representing God and the people? 
God made those decisions. Because we know what would have happened. They would have formed a committee. The vote would have went 17 different directions. It would have been indecision. They would have split the country, split the groups. Instead of 12 tribes, we would have 32 tribes. 14 different kings. 17 different judges. It would have been a mess. God said, Moses is my man, and when he's done, it's Joshua. That's what I said. Moses is so important. How can we get through the Bible without appreciating Moses? But Moses pales in comparison to Jesus. The scriptures aren't about Moses. The scriptures are about Jesus. Even the scriptures that Moses authored are about Jesus. Moses says, I've spoken to the Lord as if face to face, but there's a prophet like me coming who's greater than I am. And so they're saying, well, we're disciples of Moses, and you might be the disciples of Jesus, but in so doing, they're basically insulting themselves and paying this man a compliment. With their doubts and disbelief, they continue to persecute this man and his new reality. We know that God spoke through Moses, but for this man, we don't know where he comes from. But you see, that's the issue. Although the miracles that Jesus is performing testify to the fact that he is indeed the Son of God, they refuse to believe it. But this man who was healed simply says, you do not know where he comes from, and yet... He opened my eyes? We can't have it both ways. We can enjoy the work of God in our lives while we trust him with our faith. Or we can live a life without his work and live a life that is faithless. But you don't get both. Ultimately, this paragraph comes to a close with the Jewish leaders throwing this man out after they feel lectured by him about their unbelief in the face of what is obviously a work of God by the Son of God. There are some people who are hard, hard, hard. They won't be changed. They won't adjust. They won't submit. It doesn't matter what words we use, what strategies we employ, or what scriptures we quote. They simply don't believe. They have, they have seen the work of God in their life, right? The impossibility has become possible. The doctor said no, and God said yes, and still, it's not enough. We all know people who have made this bargain with God. God, if you do this, then I will. And sometimes God goes, okay, I will. Okay, okay, okay. I have ample power and miraculous ability. It's not like it's, I'm spending anything to do this for you, but I'm doubting your reaction here. I'm going to do it. And then God does it, and then what happens? Next month. I'm going to get to it next month. When are we going to come of age? When are we going to come of age? This isn't the case with this man who's been healed, however, which leads to our next point, and that is the conversion. That's in verses 35 through 41. Let's look at it again. 
as we get to this last point, Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, well, sir, tell me who he is so I can believe. And Jesus said, you've seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. And he says, Lord, I believe he fell down and worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind, etc., etc. You see, first... In chapter 9, verse 1, if you want to go back and peek there, we talked about this last week in, the, in our first message. It says that Jesus saw the man, right? It says that Jesus saw the man. And, we, and we, we camped out there for a minute because it's so important that we notice that Jesus sees people who are invisible to so many. We walk by people on a regular basis, and we say, how are you doing this? And that's so good. And I say, oh, that's okay. That's good. And we keep going. We don't pay attention to people so often because, let's face it, we're busy. We're consumed. We're being absorbed by a thousand different things to the extent that sometimes we're not even polite. Not me, but you. <laughs> what is so funny about that? Anyway, we're all at fault. I'm certainly at fault. But the truth of the matter is, is Jesus is never at fault. Jesus sees people who are invisible to us. And in chapter 9, verse 1, they're just walking around. And Jesus sees a man who hasn't been seen in so long. And I'm not trying to force more definition into these, into these two words. But what I want you to note in verse 35 is that when Jesus heard that they had cast out the guy that Jesus had seen, that it says that Jesus, what? found him. Jesus saw him in the beginning of the chapter, and then there was this whole conflict in the middle of, the, of, this, of this episode, and then when they cast him out, Jesus not only saw him, but Jesus found him. I think these words have so much purpose. We learned last week that sometimes when we're at our lowest point, when no one else will help us, and when we're at our wits' end, Jesus sees us. And now I want you to note that Jesus found this man because his work wasn't done. I wonder how many of you Jesus is searching for right now. I wonder how many of you Jesus saw and Jesus healed and Jesus is not done yet with. Wait, I, said, I sounded like Joe Biden there for a minute. I wonder how many of you Jesus saw and Jesus healed, but Jesus is not done with yet. There you go. <laughs> sure, he healed him physically, but he hasn't healed him spiritually. Spiritually, that hasn't taken place yet. And Jesus asked the man, once he has found him, God, I hope you've been found. Man, I hope you've been found. I hope you weren't blessed by God with sight and then left on your own because you refused to follow. Jesus asked the man point blank, do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man is this prophetic phrase from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is not an easy book, but one thing we can grasp from the book of Daniel about the Son of Man is that he's a heavenly figure, apocalyptic, powerful, 
and he brings salvation. It also suggests the humanity of Jesus. Interestingly, it was Jesus' favorite disti- um, uh, uh, reference to himself, designation of himself. He used it over 80 times. Do you believe in the Son of Man, Jesus said, and the, and the young man says, who is he? Who is he is the response that Jesus gets because at this point, think about it, the man doesn't know who Jesus is. He was blind. Jesus spit in the clay, rubbed it together, put it on his eyes, as it were, you know, referencing that, that, that Genesis verse in chapter 2 where it says, from the dust of the ground, God created man. Jesus says, I'm creating sight for you right now. Puts this dust on the, of the ground on his eyes. And he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And on coming back, he could see. But on coming back, he was asked by his neighbors and all these people, hey, you were the guy that was blind. Now you can see. Yeah, I was blind and now I can see. And they start to interrogate him and there is that conflict. So he never actually got back to Jesus. But in his typical awesome fashion, When the man says, who is the son of man, sir? Jesus says, I love this. He doesn't say, I am he. He could have. Jesus says, you've seen him. How good is that? Man, the fact that he meets us where we are. He doesn't say, I am he. He doesn't give him some weird poetic response he says dude you are looking at him you are look the eyes that i have given you the sight that i have given you that you've never had that is the very thing that you are using to look upon the son of man right now who is the son of man you're looking at him i'm looking at him You have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. Man, Jesus has a way of reaching past the veil, doesn't he? We know that this is when the conversion takes place. We know that this is when the conversion takes place. How do we know? We know because at these words, you are looking at him. Perhaps the recognition of his voice is there and the healing and the self-proclamation of Jesus being his Messiah. I am he. I am the son of man. You're looking at him. Upon this, the man falls to his knees and worships him. And listen, no one is worshipped in the Bible but God. No one is worshipped in the Bible but God. I want to throw two references at you because they're important for us to appreciate, I think they're going to come up here on the screen. One is from Acts, one is from Revelation. Yes? Yes. Okay, great. Okay, so the first one is this. Peter receives a vision while he's in prayer, and in the vision, the Lord says, go to Cornelius. Cornelius is what is called a God-fearer, meaning he's a, he's a, he's a monotheist, but he's a Roman. He doesn't have a hundred gods. He only, he's only worshiping one God. He's a God-fearer, but he, but he really isn't a man of faith as we would understand it. So, so Peter is instructed, and he says, he says Lord, Lord, I, he's a Gentile. Peter is given visions of these foods that Jews do not eat. And he says, take and eat. And Peter says, I won't take and eat. These things are unclean to me. 
three times. And finally, the Lord says, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And that revelation was an instruction to Peter that he was to go from the Jewish group that he was ministering to to the non-Jewish group that he wasn't ministering to, in particular, this man Cornelius. And so Cornelius receives Peter. He travels to him. He goes in. And it says in the book of Acts, when the apostle Peter comes in, it says, quote, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, man. I'm just a man. Now, many of you come from a Roman Catholic background. Many of you know what it is to kneel before an archbishop or a pope. Peter is considered in the Roman system the first pope. This is a conflict of what is the traditional Roman Catholic teaching. We don't bow before men. I don't care if he's dressed in white and behind a, a bulletproof glass or not. We don't bow before men. Jesus goes so far as to say you call no man father except your father in heaven. There's a, there's a piece of authority. There's a piece of respect there. There's an acknowledgement that only God can do what I'm ascribing to this human. Even the apostle Peter, and no pope has ever been an apostle. Even the apostle Peter says, man, get up. Don't worship me. I'm just a man. Let's take it a step farther. We go to the book of Revelation. At the conclusion of the book of Revelation, which is hard enough to get through alone, you get to the conclusion of the book of Revelation in chapter 22. If you can make it, you're dehydrated, you're confused, you're clawing with both your hands. God, help me. Am I even saved anymore? John gets this revelation. It says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Wow. What a powerful reminder. We love to spiritualize things, right? Angels are so fascinating to us. They're not fascinating to God. In fact, in Peter's letter, it says that the angels search out the things that they don't experience, but we do. They look at redemption and they're amazed. They look at reconciliation and they're amazed at God's grace and what he can do with humanity because the angels aren't getting converted. The angels are with God or they are against God, and that is that. We're seeing in our humanity redemption that we don't see in the angelic realm. We're so entertained by the angels. But the angels aren't entertained with each other. Men can't save us, so they don't deserve our worship. Angels can't save us. So they don't deserve our worship. Get this. Worship follows conversion and belief. That's the paradigm. Worship follows conversion and belief. When you say, well, what do you mean by worship? I mean a wholehearted, unadulterated offering of oneself to God. I don't mean music. That's one part of worship. And I don't mean just studying. That's another part of worship, using your mind to glorify God. 
I don't mean serving. That's using your hands and your feet and your talents to glorify God by helping others. Those are all ways that we serve and worship God. What I do mean is that if we don't do them, have we really converted? Have we, have we, have we emptied that word of all its real meaning? In our own convention, by the way, we're, we're coming to this reality. The Southern Baptist Convention is hitting speed bump after speed bump right now. And it's hitting speed bump after speed bump right now because it's holding on to some things it needs to let go of, and it needs to grab with both hands on some other things it's not touching. One of the things that the Southern Baptist Convention is so very well known of is, 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 or so very well known for is, is evangelism. Evangelism is so important to Southern Baptists. What did the Lord say? Go into all the world, make disciples, right? The Great Commission, we call it. And we say amen to that. And we say absolutely to that. But what has happened in previous decades is we have focused so much on evangelism that we've neglected discipleship. We've dislocated those things. And they're not meant to be dislocated. They're supposed to happen together. So, so we went from 18 million to 17 million to 16 million to 15 million. Why? It's simple. We're telling people what to pray. We're putting music behind it. And we're saying, if you say this prayer, you're saved. And then next week, they don't come back to church. And because they don't come back to church, guess who doesn't come back to church either? Their kids. Church is meant to be family. The covenants were about family. I believe, my wife believes, our kids are in church. It's not an option. We're not discussing it. We're not, we're not, we're not giving options. We're not, no, you're in church. On Sunday, you're in church. You're on, this is Lord's Day, you're in church. Why do I need to go to church? Because you're a sinner saved by grace. You need to worship the God who saved you. Oh, you're mean. No, 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 no. You think I'm mean? You've been plucked from hell because of what you've said, what you've done, what you've thought by a gracious Savior who loves you dearly. Go celebrate him today. That's what worship is. Now, what we have done as Southern Baptists is we've become so good at evangelism, we've become awful at discipleship. Now we're realizing, where'd everybody go? Why are our baptism numbers down? Because Joe and Dimey stopped going to church, so their kids aren't there either. Their kids don't come to faith, so their kids don't get baptized. We're on a downward spiral because we got fat. And we got fat because we weren't working with the muscle of good theology. And it's coming to reap what we've sown. Our churches in the United States of America... We don't want numbers to go down, but we want the right numbers to be there. And that's going to happen. It's going to happen on a regular basis. Love what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If your kids don't know the answer to that question, that's part of the problem. If you've been in church 20 years and don't know the answer to that question... That's a problem. I hope that you've been here seven months. You know the answer already. We're not coming together for each other. And we're not coming together for ourselves. We're coming together for the God who saved us. To give him glory and to give him praise. Worship follows conversion. 
So why aren't we worshiping more? Well, hmm. There's only one biblical answer to that. Has nothing to do with style. Some of you like older songs. Has nothing to do with style. Some of you like newer songs. But those of you who have a heart in the right place, those of you who have converted, don't care if it was written in 1850 or 1950, 1900 or 2000. It doesn't matter because these words are meant to bring praise and glory to our God. I'll sing the old one. I'll sing the new one. Some of the old ones are terrible. Some of the new ones are terrible. But some of the old ones, man. some of the new ones it's not an issue of everything has to be right for me to worship it's an issue of I'm going to worship watch out I'm worshiping I have to worship why do you have to worship because I once was blind but now I see I once was sick but now I'm healed I once said, who is he, Lord? And he said, I am he, and he raised me to life. I was dead, but now I live. So I don't care what song it is, I'm going to sing it. I don't care what text it is, I'm going to study it. I don't care what ministry it is, I'm going to serve in it. Because the church is only as healthy as the converted Christians that give themselves to it. What's God done in your life? Where's he brought you from and what's he gifted you with? If we know God, then simply knowing him should compel us to worship him because he's an awesome God. But what's more, if we know how he's blessed us, we should worship him all the more. We were made to worship, and if we're not worshiping him, we're worshiping something or someone. It might be food, it might be sex, it might be drugs, it might be a spouse, it might be our kids, it might be a hobby, it might be money, it might be a career or a title. We're all worshiping something. We're all saying to something, if I have you, I will have joy. What's the answer to the question? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, that's what worship is. We worship because in, worship we, in worshiping we have joy. There's so many people who, who, for one reason or another, don't come to church because they're dealing with this or they're dealing with that. And I'm like, yo, that's the last thing you need to do. The first place you need to be is in church. Why is the first thing that goes church? The preaching here is pretty good. The people here are pretty nice. We come, we come here and we do our work. If you, if you don't like heavy lifting, then, then you need to stretch. And you're not going to stretch in bed. You're not going to stretch over here doing this thing and that thing. You need to come here and cry. You need to come here and cry. We're a family. This is the way it works. You need to come here and have a hard day. You need to come here and have a hard day. You, you, you're dealing with something. You need to deal with it with us. That's how it works. We're a family. Amen?
Why is it that we so quickly put away worship? I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. There are things that have happened in my life that have happened at line two of verse three of some song I can't even remember because I was there. And if I wasn't there, what would have happened? If I wasn't singing, what would have happened? If I didn't put myself there vulnerable, needy, hurt, frustrated, angry, whatever the case is, what would have happened? I don't know, but it couldn't have been a good thing because God met me in the worship. God will meet you in the worship. But you got to be converted. Worship happens after conversion. That's what we see here. When the Pharisees hear that this is taking place, they go, hey, what's going on? What's going on here, you and this kid? This judgment thing. Are you, are you trying to say something to us? The Pharisees say to Jesus. Are you trying to insinuate that we can't see? That we somehow are spiritually blind? Verse 41 and Jesus said to them, well, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Now, I just want to say this. And I, and I, I don't mean, this is not ugly. This is something you and I have to come to terms with, okay? Ready? We are responsible for our condition. Remember those boundaries I, I mentioned to you earlier? Some of you are in the situation you're in because you never had any. That's your fault. That's not God's fault. It's not where is God? He doesn't love me. It's not if God loved me, I wouldn't have lost my job. No, you were late for six months. It's not about if God loved me, I would be healthy. No, you have not been eating well and exercising. This is, this is practical stuff here. It, God is not against you in that way. We like to make excuses for our lack of behavior so that it, it relieves us of the fact that we are responsible for our situation. The Pharisees go, you're not calling us blind, are you? And he says, listen. If you'd own up to your baggage, you wouldn't be blind. But since you claim that you don't have any baggage and you can see fine, carry it yourself. That's what Jesus is saying here. D.A. Carson puts it very well. He says, Jesus did not come to a world of sinners aware of their need and eager to be rid of their sin. Even those who entirely rely on genuine but inadequate light may prove too arrogant to admit the depth of their blindness. <laughs>